Hey everybody, it's Tommy. Hence, the happy music. <laughs> Hope everybody is doing well out there. We have a really fun and beautiful uh, episode in store for you today. It's a little long, so um, about halfway through, close to the halfway point, I'll let you know. Also, in this episode, we mentioned a podcast that you should totally check out. And if you check it out, you'll get to hear today's guest, Kina, on it. Because she was on Jen Kenny's new podcast, Story Power. Let me make sure I'm getting that right. Story Power Podcast. Uh, it's by our friend Jen Kenny from Speaking of Racism. And the premise is story is sacred, and when shared, it has the power to change the world. So, it's kind of what we're doing here, too. Through an anti-oppressive lens. And so we're just happy to do this work in community, with friends like Jen Kinney, with friends like Kina, um, who you're just going to gain so much from today. Um... I'm in awe that we get to do this work, even as we try to rest and get the episodes out in timely fashion. So we hope you enjoy this episode and we shall see you soon on the other side, my friends. Be well. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. What do we do? Uh, we, we leave our F-bombs in and... Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound, they're going to keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to. Out of, uh, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speak, that I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is, um, yeah. and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it. Unfiltered. I feel like that's gotta sound strange. Permission to be. Uh, actually, my, my my literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to Permission to Be. B is Tommy here, um, but you probably know that by now. If you have been listening for any <laughs> amount of time, you know my voice. So I probably don't it's even you? have to say. Who are you? <laughs> Tommy Allgood is here in the house. I got <laughs> Becca with me today. Hey, <laughs> and we have the honor and privilege of having our friend Kina Reed. Um, I was going to say your full name and realize I was going to butcher it. So I'm just going to ask you to say it so that I can not butcher it. <laughs> it's Joaquina. Reed. Joaquina. That's right. Like it's Joaquin Phoenix. But my parents didn't know to put the A in it. <laughs> they didn't know. They didn't right. know. 
you 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 educated us on this last week, and I I, I it slipped my brain. So I'm so it's sorry. Okay, I mean, I don't because you're Tina to me. You're Tina. Yeah, I'm Tina to everybody, and like now that like. Legit. So y'all, okay. So I did something that like, this is how you know that I'm feeling myself because like I started to recently Google myself. Right. And so it's like, Ooh, your girl getting like, you know, like before I talked to walking to read no results. And I was kind of banking on my government name being my, in case I do a crime name. And <laughs> But now, like, the two, like, I was like, never the two still meet, right? But now it's, like, getting closer and closer. I'm like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta find a new crime name. I need a new crime name. So if you are now feverishly (laughs) Googling (laughs) Tina, here's what you need to know. (laughs) Okay, let me tell you. Let me tell you the crime I'm going to get arrested for if I get arrested for a crime. This is much more interesting than what I was going to say, so go. (laughs) I will, which is a hoity-toity neighborhood in some part of the South, okay? Our neighborhood doesn't do recycling. So what I do is... I gather my recyclable goods and every two weeks I just find a place to like dump my recyclable goods. But y'all, that's illegal. You know, to like bring your trash to other places. And a lot of the places where I recycle, I'm not going to tell y'all where I recycle it, but are places like, you know, it would be considered trespassing. So I'm like, okay, like if I get arrested for something, it would be like this woman came to recycle. But I said, at the same time, it makes a good front page story. I mean, you know, I I, I got arrested for my deep commitment to the earth. Um, I, I I think I think we come from a line of people that have been arrested for deep commitments to justice, uh, environmental justice being at the yes. forefront of that as well. So, in case you are still wondering, Kina is a community advocate. Uh, uh, educator, uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. Um, she's a researcher, a writer, public speaker. Um, and within all of her spheres of influence, she attempts to act ACT right. She challenges herself to A, advocate for self and others, practicing C, critical compassion, and moving through spaces with a T, transformative transparency. Welcome to Permission to Be, Kina. It's so, 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 so good to have you here. It's so good to be had. Y'all are amazing. Y'all are so dope. <laughs> I feel special. Aww. We, we, we truly feel honored. And um, just so for background, Kina and I met uh, at a Speaking of Racism event yes. that we were facilitating um, I actually didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. you guys do a, like a Patreon web thing. So if you're workshop. not if you're not supporting, uh, speaking of racism, you are missing out on some really amazing content and and opportunities. So make sure you head over to Patreon and support Tina and Jen Kenny. Yeah, um, and Tina, like shout out to Tina because I don't like. Sometimes I feel like I should like. Uh, I don't know. Tina is like teaching me all this stuff that I don't think Tina even knows she's teaching me. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And giving me stuff that I didn't even knew I needed. Like I didn't know I needed to know you, Tommy. And then Tina was like, Kina and Tommy, Kina and Tommy. And then after Mm -hmm. connecting, I was like, I'm going to stalk 
his whole life right now. <laughs> I told Tommy, I told him afterwards, I'm like, I just want you to know that I'm low-key about to stalk you. Don't be concerned. <laughs> I just I just wish everybody who stalked me owned up to it one and then two were as thoughtful as you are about it. So <laughs> I, Come I felt closet stalkers. <laughs> I, I'm I'm honored to be stalked by you. Um Kina, you also the anti blackness reader. Can you tell us yeah. about that? Oh, okay. We're going right there. Okay, awesome. Um so um okay, here we go. So Atiana Jefferson was murdered. And isn't it horrible that like so many black people are the victims of state sanctioned violence that it's like, do you remember this one? Right. Because there's so many. So Atiana Jefferson is a woman who uh, was murdered when a police officer came by uh, her mother's, her parents home outside of Dallas, Texas for a wellness check. Right. So Atiana Jefferson is the wellness check uh, murder that took place in 2019, October 2019. And so I am someone who lives in my head a lot. And when her murder happened. I kept going to this place of like, hey, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this occur? Why did this occur? Um, and I kept thinking like, there's a part of this conversation that's not happening. And so, like I said, I, I, I'm somebody who thinks a lot. I went straight into books. I started reading. And the result of that was really me coming to this place of like, that's because we're not talking about anti-Blackness, which is the idea that Black people shouldn't be alive because they're not even human, right? So mm -hmm. I feel like it's really important that when we do any kind of anti-racism labor, right, we have to diagnose things in a full holistic way. And so for me, that was the missing part of the conversation. And so what the Anti-Blackness Reader Project was really me starting to return to myself, right? Mm. Um, and recognizing how I had internalized these real value statements about who I am that came from the white gaze, from recognizing also all the ways I internalized the ways that I've been taught to believe I don't deserve full humanity. And so it started in, the, in fall of 2019 with me kind of like coming to grips with some of those things, um, realizing like, what does it mean to think of myself as fully human, think of myself as demanding humanity? And then it manifested uh, via Instagram in early May of 2020, a few weeks before George Floyd was murdered. So the Anti-Blackness Reader Project is really a space for centering black voices. Um, it's a space for exposing anti-blackness, however it shows up, and it shows up in so many ways. Um, you know, I, I did this, you know, when I talked on Story Podcasts, I talked about like how the great insurrection was an anti-black act. Um, and I think, you know, when we frame it from that lens, it's very, it opens up so much more in terms of dialogue. Um, and then the third thing that anti-blackness does is really try to lift up a place of like black story and truth telling. Cause that's where we find more than trauma. That's where we find joy, right? Mm. Um, so learning how to do that, you know, and I'm not the first person to have that conversation, right? Like how do we investigate those things, right? Both for real, both for absolutely impacting our material realities, but um, 
yeah, that's what the anti-blackness project is. And I think even though those are the three major goals, I would say out there in the proof, like out on the sidelines is this, this giving people a model of what it means to say this shit's for us. Because I don't think we really know what that is. What, can you unpack that a little bit when you say, yeah. like, so, what's for us? So, like, for a, a couple of years ago, I created a Black women's mentorship uh, networking experience where I live. And for months before I launched it, I was like, how am I going to find ways to say why nobody else can come but Black women? Mm. How am I going to articulate this? How am I going to frame it? How can I promote it in a way that doesn't make it seem like nobody else matters, but like this is important? And that was hard for me. And I realized that was the first time in my life that I had made those demands. And outside of what I would call, let's see, let's say like uh, historically Black colleges and universities mm-hmm. and outside of like networking organizations, were Black people really standing up and being like, oh, no, y'all can't can't come in. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you really think about that on like an institutional and societal level, that really doesn't exist. Uh-uh. No. You know, now yeah. we can say that there are spaces that only black people show up because of like the environment, like black churches. Yeah. Right. Right. Or certain schools in the hood. Right. But even then, there's no sign that says only black folks. Yeah. Well, even the schools is, is usually there's not choice in that with the current model of how schools are set up. And so to actively choose to create a space of safety Mm -hmm. uh, away from the cultural explanations that people who are not in association with you or have had experiences like yours, that's just, that's seeking solidarity, which is uniquely human for us, right? We, we seek yeah. solidarity and we seek uh, this relationality in relationships. And, and so it's really interesting. I don't think on the podcast we've explicitly broken down anti-racism. I think there can be this perception that anti-racism is all about black and white and is not, right? There's it isn't. And so I love when we talk about you bringing out this missing component of anti-blackness because racism, it it could be um, anti-Asian sentiment. It can be anti-Latinx sentiment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so we get to expand and really think about, right, uh, what does it mean to be anti-racist and expand the conversation Uh, not just to focus on the dynamics that are prominent here in the United States of America with uh, between our history with black and white people, but understand how racism affects us at a broader picture. And I think that people miss that when they talk about anti-racism. Yeah. And I would argue, you know, um, you know, and I feel like I say this in different spaces. Like if you, if anybody wants to come for me, it's fine. You know where to find me. Google Joaquin Reed, apparently. <laughs> but, you as a counterphobic six girl, counterphobic. <laughs> but I would say that anti 
blackness existed before racism. Mm. Right? And I mean, I have a speech on this, right? So like as early as the 14th century, right? When Europeans are like, gotta get on a boat, cabin fever. That's how I, I just explained (laughs) colonization, y'all. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's imperialism. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So they got a boat, driving around, you know, riding around, sailing the seas. And when they get to the continent where everything is great, People are dope as hell. And they're looking around like, how are y'all so dope? Y'all are amazing. Shit, I didn't know people could do this. That was Africa, right? And, yeah. and then the way that they start making notes about like our ancestors, right? So much of that journaling described us as not human. Mm. So then by the time we get to the 15th century, where there's much more widespread um, exploration and people are leaving Africa with more things, right? This is before they leave Africa with necessarily people, although there were people on those ships, but just like they started trading with the continent and, you know, dispersing goods. And they're talking about our ancestors, like, again, furthering these claims that we're not human, right? Um, almost like they're seeing something otherworldly, but don't know how to describe it, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and we so weren't cultured like, in the way that they thought we should be cultured. Right? Like, you hear what I'm saying? And so then by the time the 16th century happens, and now we start to see that illegal movement of human beings, right? There you go. You know, the mythology of the not human African has existed for two centuries. Mm. So that's my argument is that that concept that black people aren't human existed before racism and let me be really clear i always define racism within uh structures and institutions okay and i mean Mm -hmm. i don't want to sit here and get into the uh the demographics of that because there's still people who define it personally interpersonally you know i mean that's not what i'm here for but for me if we're always making racism an institutional structural process then yes anti-blackness existed before the institutions did that would widespreadly like that would distribute that type of violence across multiple black bodies I love that because you've also uh, you've done so much just with that explanation. It's so yeah. rich, um, and I feel like if we're focusing on structures and changing society, like is that's where you need to focus on like the systemic racism. And or for me in my coaching practice, where I really root into the internal and interpersonal racism is through like this process of being in our bodies. Um, mm-hmm in doing what does it look like to do that work as an individual and internally to be in our bodies. Um, and then there's that structure component, right? And I feel like those two distinctions can be each their own feels almost. And, but I think that they're equally important uh, because ulti- even if you're talking, when I think about systems and structures, they're made up of individuals and people. And so at some level, I can attack the system and structure all I want to, but if we're not also transforming the hearts of people, yeah, they're just going to continue to replicate themselves. And that's hard. Figuring out the balance is hard, right? 
Mm-hmm. In what spaces do we fo- do? In what spaces do we directly deal with the structures? And in what spaces do we come back to this heart? Come back to the embodiment? Like that's always really an interesting tension to manage. So I, I personally, being a uh, a white woman, have not really separated it at all. Um, Anti blackness and racism, and my first thought is, how damaging is that? that we do not separate them. And when I say we, I mean white people and that we keep them as when racism was created within colonization. And yet there's this whole other sentiment. And if we can't break them, if we can't break the two courses of thought, courses of exclusion, courses of just, breaking down um equity then we we ha- we have to like we have to we have to do that we will not be able to bring reparations and to break down and rebuild the system without really studying both racism and anti-blackness it's just i don't want to generalize and say it's impossible but i almost feel like that's the sentiment is that it's impossible Again, speaking for white people, we have to break that down and really realize where we're at and where we're working from and where we're coming from. And when when we say we're allies, what does that encompass? Yeah. And, you know, there's so much you said that was rich there. Uh, and I had like two different things, but I want to respond because, first of all, white people from an outsider position struggle with even seeing the construct of race right so like there's that mm-hmm. component of like what do you mean i'm white that means something <laughs> right so yeah, there's, nope, yep, right? yep, yep. Um, uh, my just defined what whiteness is on our last episode so if you haven't listened to that go back and find maisha's <laughs> yes, hills you, Maisha, you're, yes, you're gonna yes. need that let's continue yes. to build on our knowledge base here friends right? so that's the first part so like yeah white people who don't even recognize that they have racialized experiences won't even be able to step into the temple of my blackness if they can't even understand that the construct is imaginary but the second (laughs) thing is let's talk about something like uh i don't want to use the language because like people get so freaked out about it what is what's the alternative we don't uh, oh gosh, I saw this and it was cool. Like, how do we resource communities without making policing the center of it? Right, redistributing, redistributing, yeah. right, redistribution. Yes, distribution. Okay. I'm an abolitionist. I don't care if people are uncomfortable. Let's have a conversation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, I haven't been using the word defund police because it's like people are mad triggered, right? You know, but that idea of like redistributing sources, community resources. So like mental health care, social, uh, uh, social services, um, that all of that good stuff we love to think about, right? Let's say we snap our fingers and tomorrow that's what we got. But if anti-blackness has not been addressed, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because right. then what you got is a lot of, uh, you know, social, uh, social workers and therapists and educators and people in the community doing amazing stuff, right? Like amazing stuff. But they still haven't dealt with their inherent belief that Black people are human. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we, we've talked about this on different levels. Like I really, 
and I, I want to dig deeper in this, I, you know, the epigenetics, the DNA, I really think there has something to do with imprinting on DNA. And I believe it's passed down. Yeah. And my husband thinks I'm a little hokey about that, but I, I do. I think it's that deep. That I mean, anti-blackness is did that. Did you listen to Hillary McBride's conversation with her? <laughs> <laughs> she, she unpacked it really well. <laughs> I mean, it is. Why do you think, why do you think, and I'm just, I'm going to be super petty for a second. Yep. Why do you think that there's all types of people who sleep with black folks, like have sexual relationships with them, and then can walk away from those relationships and still be like, oh, maybe he deserved to be shot by police officers. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I'm just saying yeah, like- No, yep, yeah, yeah. Proximity to blackness, and that's, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but I'm just saying like, part of the reason why someone can be in a sexual relationship with a black person or any kind of relationship, I mean, I was just thinking about the people in my head and that like a lot of that is like a romantic sexual involvement, but like, why do you think those people could be in those close proximity relationships with black people and still support policies and procedures and processes that kill black folks yeah well there's nothing in that to change the dominant narratives right and there there is not that necessarily you know when i when i think about the people that i've dated and i've been more conscious about this especially in uh interracial relationships of um not making it my responsibility to educate, but to bring awareness to what my experience is as a black person, um, yeah. and how that affect. And I don't know if that is happening at large in in interracial relationships, unless there's a big national conversation or tragedy in which it gets highlighted, and we have yeah. to begin to talk about our experiences and how we walk differently throughout yeah. our lives in the world. And so that's it's a really interesting thing to like think about and to yeah. process because unless we're challenging the dominant narrative, then we're just expecting people to assimilate into the social norm. Or assuming that they just get something, you know? I have a friend recently, and for the sake of the story, I'm gonna tell you like she's a white woman. And uh, she started talking about like, blah, 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 black friend. And I told her, I said, friend, you know, you don't have to tell me you have black friends, right? And she's like, oh gosh, I didn't realize I was doing that. I was like, first of all, you don't usually have to tell any black person that because there's a whole different energy. And there's a whole different energy when you're dealing with a white person who has real intimacy with black people versus what I call the survival mechanism of faux friendship with white folks. Yeah, we know if you've been around us. (laughs) We know. You don't gotta explain it. It's a whole culture, yo. It's a and whole it's a culture. Whole, and I, I don't even know how to put the words, right? Like, I couldn't even describe it. But I can be in a room with a white woman and be like, oh, she has real black friends, not fake black friends, because that's a thing. And I, you know, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm giving away community secrets. But that is a hmm. thing. Black people have learned how to create faux friendships with non-black folks as a survival mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a lot of white people like, oh my gosh, my black friend Tamika. No, Tamika's, you're Tamika's friend, but you're not, like, Tamika's your friend, but you are not Tamika's friend. Those are two different things. And so you can tell 
when a white person or a non-black person has started doing the work to fully see black folks. There's a whole different energy, Mm. just completely. It's so interesting that you bring that up because in the world of vulnerability that we live in and and Mother Brene Brown, right? That (laughs) there's this deep... Sorry, you called him Mother Brene Brown. (laughs) Did you see my face? Because I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> right. Like pretty bad times. I mean, but like for for I'm not referring to her as mother of black people in that instance, but like white people is like she's like mother of vulnerability to them, right? And so, <sighs> and and I, I just deep sigh for a second. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm not here for are people acting like these white women have like created some shit. Like it just, I just need to die. I mean, yeah, okay. Right, right. There's, there's lots it's of- because they're not listening until they see someone with, we're not listening until we see someone with their same skin tone. Yeah. Yeah. I think Dr. Shaniko had a really interesting perspective on uh, where Brene's work is lacking. I think recently she's been digging- into that a little bit more and she's on her journey and like I honor the journey and where she is in that. Right. And so I think though that women deemed white specifically or those who subscribe to that, that line of vulnerability often don't necessarily expand what it actually means to be vulnerable. Right. I was working with a client and we were processing that And it was all about, well, it's me sharing myself openly. And no, vulnerability is is this two-way street, right? And it's not just about Mm -hmm. you sharing, but it's also how do you listen? How do you hold space? And so often we can tell because uh, the difference because you walk in into a room and you center yourself, like whiteness centers itself. It yep. doesn't know how to hold space nope. or act in authentic vulnerability um, to bridge these cultural connections and see us in our full human essence. Yeah. And, you know, it's so crazy because it's not that I want to necessarily center whiteness because we were talking about the anti-blackness media, right? But, you know, I tell people with all violent systems, rather we're talking about heteronormativity, rather we're talking about anti-blackness, whatever the violent system is, all of the people involved in it are harm. And whiteness is so harmful to white people and just getting to see that. It does not create space. Why can't we be vulnerable? Because we're not even allowed to fail. Whiteness, one of the major tenets of whiteness is yes. failure is not an option. Perfectionism. And if, yes, and if you fail, bury that shit deep in the ground. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So vulnerability cannot be possible if you can't even, if you're not allowed to fail. If you're not allowed to celebrate failure, if you're not allowed to lift up what failure does to the human condition, right? Us failing lifts us up higher in a lot of ways than success ever does. You know what I'm and saying? And critique the failure, right? The, I think yes, the critique of the failure is, is massively important. And yeah. that's where we run into a lot of the, can't talk about the fragility. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Oh. I mean, and it's, that just points out the need for having 
a mentoring group that is for Black women only. Yeah. I mean, you've just completely laid groundwork for why it's so important because it's not a safe space to be vulnerable. Right. Yeah. The experiences aren't validated. They're often spoken over. They're often um, yeah. interpreted in ways uh, in, in with with words that weren't said um, in, in ways that weren't meant. And so it it creates this sense of safety and community in which there's no need to show up in a certain way. It's just you can come as you are. Yeah. And that just brings me to like something I've seen online. We're now we're talking about white ladies, but like there was this thing. Um, and I get, you know, I'm learning how to get better about uh calling like, you know, I'm quick on the whole I'm gonna come for you kind of thing. So I'm learning how to like have some like nuance around that. Um, but I don't know if it was Jen. Somebody posted something that was like white women need to learn how to have sisterhood, you know? And, you know, I've heard that before, right? Like that that's not a community ethic, right? And so this conversation is making me think about that, like that vulnerability, like what, you know what I'm saying? To have sisterhood, Mm -hmm. you need to be able to be vulnerable in safety. And, you know, that I think that conversation got read from like a very like fragility, like, what do you mean? We know how to be friends. We're in sororities. And I'm like, ooh, that's not the same thing, right? And so, Uh yeah, definitely like, finding those ways to like create kind of bringing it back to the anti-blackness reader is finding a way to create those spaces that are just for us Mm -hmm. so that we can return to us and when i say return to us so much of the story that we tell about ourselves as black people in the united states as descendants of the enslaved really do come from the vantage point of white people Mm. you know for years you know and this is me just kind of being open about my own journey. That's what we love here. Thank you so much. (laughs) I've had cousins. So I, for, so I was a Claire Huxtable. Okay. Right. So let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. (laughs) I was like, I'm doing all the rules, all the things that white people said I need to do. My hair is straight. I've learned how to talk like a white person. I got all these degrees. I'm up in this thing. Okay. And that's why I can talk about whiteness because I was subscribed. I subscribed. Number one subscriber. Like, no, mm. don't let anybody tell you. I can tell you about whiteness because I had a monthly subscription to that shit. I was reading up. You mm. know what I'm saying? And even now, like, <laughs> sometimes it comes out and like, ooh, got more work to do. All right. Mm. Um, but for the longest time, I felt like I was on the right path. I was in, I was Claire Huxtable. I was doing all the right things. And I would judge family or friends. You know what I'm saying? I had people in my family who, you know, did illegal things and I would judge them. And I'm like, why can't they just get their stuff together? Why are they having all these multiple kids? Why can't, you know, and coming on the other side of that. All the tropes. (laughs) I'm like, you a busy mama, girl. Like, I'm telling you what I did. I'm not talking about something I heard. Mm. I did it. It felt justified to critique black folks. Which is so far removed from who I am today because now my position is I'm not judging how Black people survive an anti-Black world. Do what you got to do. Mm -hmm. Period. I think it's very common to people who have gone through this awakening 
through this conscious process that yes. we begin to recognize ways in which we've also participated in and up, up, upheld these harmful stereotypes and myths about blackness. Yeah. And so that's what that's part of what returning to me feels and sounds like. It's returning to the community without judgment. It's returning the community without policing. Mm -hmm. It's seeing the fullness that your drug selling cousin with five baby mamas is still a human. There's equal resources, support and equality. It's asking the question, what is what is creating the conditions for the behavior versus focusing on just the behavior? Yeah. Mm. So that's like that's part of that journey for me is being like, because what whiteness does, is it created this really pseudo way, which I could see myself apart. And now it's like doing the work to see myself in the mix, all you know what I'm saying, like completely in it. Good, bad, in between. Good and bad is really false binary, but that's a whole nother conversation too. Right. So you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what that has looked like for me. Returning to self has also been like returning to community, returning to that place where like there's no need to gatekeep certain behaviors or police certain behaviors because it's the same. Where you, you know, my grandma used to say, you put us in a bag, shake it all up everybody comes out the same and it is, you know? So how do I frame myself in a way in which there's no difference between me and a drug dealing cousin, right? I mean, obviously there's nuance there. I have more economic securities and safety nets. Yeah. But really not holding that difference and celebrating it. And I had to learn, I had to unlearn that. So that's what I'm saying. That journey of like returning to self is so important. Because I don't think as Black people, we recognize how many messages we receive that make it easier for us to hierarchy each other. Yeah. So can we, let's talk about, so you said something really interesting a, a little bit ago about like, that we just kind of re- like our jaws dropped about not really having friends until you're 18. Is that okay oh, to talk about? Oh my gosh, Tommy, I'm still <laughs> <now>, okay. <laughs> I have so friends on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook. Right. And yeah. so th- the reason that I bring that up, though, is just, <laughs> I think it, I, one, I think is really interesting. Because um, it, it, like, you went to school and you, like, what could you paint a picture of what created the conditions? For you at oh, six and gosh. Well, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to permission to be therapy. <laughs> I feel like you hit me with the same kind of shocker like the guy that was in my DMs yesterday. Can <laughs> 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 you fix that one? <laughs> you know, so um, my parents, so, you know, it's very funny. I grew up in a my first part of my life was very much like a, a nuclear traditional family. My mom was a stay-at-home mom for the most part. My dad worked. And then when I turned 13, they split up. We moved from like New York to the South. A lot of, uh, I mean, being a 13-year-old girl is hard enough, but like when your family split apart, you've moved regionally, all that kind of stuff. So, and then we became poor. So that's another thing too. Um, my mom became a single mom. She worked two jobs. 
right? Mm. Wow. Um, so she didn't have money for childcare. I was her co-parent. You can't be 15 trying to turn up at the football game when you got four brothers and sisters that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So mm. I just had to learn how to be a caretaker very early on. So even the practice of getting friends, like how would I have made them? Because I would have had to hang out and I couldn't hang out. Um, mm. But then I also came from a huge family. So when we moved to the South, I had 511 cousins. And so I didn't really need to like make friends because like we all lived in my grandma's house. Right. Mm. Yeah. And uh, that kind of brings me up to something that's really, really funny. I'm also like, like pivoting a little bit too, uh, because it's 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 funny like how things like space changes. So like economics shape how we see space. Economics shape how we see time. Yeah. And so we laugh about like the white kids in the movies who like I'm going to my room. But you <laughs> like first of all. Black kids can't do that because, like, we might be sharing a room with like you. You slam a door. First of all, you slam a door in your mama's house. (laughs) All right, but looking for like at one point at my grandma, who I super love, my maternal grandmother. She had like four families living in her house. Where was I gonna slam a door at it, even if I could? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? One of my favorite old Kanye West, because I'm one of those black people who he's canceled for me. Um, I'm just being honest, right? But he's like, you know, four in the bed, three at the head, whatever. Like, the song is called The Roses, and he talks about bathing with his cousins and sleeping with his cousins and that huge dynamic. And we celebrate that dynamic, of course, but that dynamic was created because of generational poverty. Yes. Mm. Yes. Right? I think they're tough. Speak on it. I mean, technically, my, I have nieces and nephews now who probably do slam the doors because there's a little bit more economic growth. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, I probably would have slammed the door if I just... Yeah, would have slam. <laughs> you know? And even this concept of, like, Black mamas is like, I know you're not about to slam the door. Well, first of all, we're talking about everyone living triggered. Yes. Mm. Yes. Speak on it. Every day. Every day. So it's not so much as like black parents were just being disciplinarians as much as like shit is real in so many ways. And as a kid, you might not know it's real, but you know something ain't right. And if you're acting like that in the house, you're going to think you can act like that outside where I can't protect you. So I have to correct it right now. Yes. Yes. All right, friends. We'll call this our halfway point. So if you need to take a break, make sure you come back and finish out the goodness of this episode. We'll be here all day talking about in the United States specifically what, that's why I've, I, I had this new revelation about a month ago because I'm reading this another amazing book. Um, but share with us what book are you reading? Yeah. Okay. It's oh gosh. Okay. It's by Diane Stewart. It's called Black Love, Black Marriage. Okay. I think that's the title of it. And it basically talks about how the institution of the enslavement of Africans has impacted like black relations today. Um, so that's the book. But 
you know, I, I just got to this point about, uh, like I said, about a month or so ago, where I'm like, Black parenting is revolutionary because what Black parents are doing, whether they're amazing or not so amazing, whatever the scale is, is parenting in a country that never intended them to do it, period. Mm. That is period. full of anti-Blackness. Yeah. Anti-Blackness, the heart of enslavement was about treating Black children as, as cattle. Yes. Black people weren't in consensual relationships. They were giving resources for breeding to a certain extent. For the they economy. Attempted, yeah, for the economy. Not to, not, not to say that they didn't attempt consent, right? And there were consensual relationships to the extent that the environment would allow it to. But the country never, and, and this is not just enslavement, right? Because we can talk about the prison industrial complex all day. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a country that does, is actively, I'm going to say that again, actively finding new ways to keep Black parents from parenting their children. Mm. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, if you're a Black parent and however you show up, it's a revolutionary act. Amen. You might as well be Malcolm X up in the bitch. Yeah. Because the country yeah. does not plan on you parenting. Period. And so, like, recognizing that, like, you know, we could talk about things that have been traumatic to our childhood, and there's space for that. Space for that. And I think part of, again, this is what I want to do with my project, is uplift things. Because I think as Black people, we've been taught, well, let me scrap that. Actually, in the United States, all people have been taught that self-governing, that the ethic of self-governing is why you're in the situation you're in. Like, yes, it's with white people who are poor all the time. You're not poor because of poverty. Right. You're and the poor- white church and the, yeah, and the white churches champion that. Oh, yes. That's what I'm saying. Like, you're poor because you made bad decisions. Your faith. Right. Like everything mm-hmm. comes down to the choices people make. And I also want to make space, and I feel like I'm having three different conversations right now, but I also want to make space that choices matter. I would never say choices don't matter. But in a world full of violent systems, in the West that is full of violent systems, self-governing can only do so much, especially when we talk about poverty. And so going back to Black people, I think we've been taught that every bad thing that we experience is because we just make bad choices. That's not true. It's just not. So even if someone is showing up as the less than ideal parent, how much of that is just tied to, like you said, the environment that isn't conducive for quality parenting in the first place? You know, I felt like that was really demonstrated really, really well in uh, the the series Little Fires Everywhere. Um, There's a specific line that Carrie Mm. Washington's character says Therese Witherspoon's character, um, where she goes, you didn't make good choices. You had good choices. Right? Right? And so I think when we're approaching these things from a systems perspective and, and thinking about personal responsibility and choice, you can't divorce the choices based on what the system provides for you as choices. Yep. You can't you can't make good choices in a system in which you have none, and and then in that same system that doesn't want to provide the 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 structures for you to prosper economically, so that you can not have to worry about eating, not have to worry about like where you're going to get your meal, not have to worry about the roof over your head, and root into the full essence of your humanity. 
thank you for sharing that. I know that was a bit of a really yeah. vulnerable question, but I knew like that was one. I, yeah. yeah. And yeah, so, no, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so it's fine. But yeah, I think a lot of those things that kind of become a part of how we see ourselves. Again, I think we spend a lot of time thinking this is just me. And really, a lot of that is compacted about what I had and don't have access to. You know, even when my mom, you know, the likelihood of my mom listening to this, who knows, because my mom never listens to anything <laughs> I do. So, but, <laughs> uh, I love her. This will be like, girl, you, hey, I'm like, wow. Hey, Kina's mom, welcome to Permission to Be. <laughs> We're talking about non-binary God. <laughs> but, you know, there's this memory I have of being maybe 15. I was either 15 or 14. And my mom, again, she had two jobs. And I'm looking in the freezer. And I remember thinking, okay, if I if I make this and use this amount of ground beef, then we will have meals for the rest of the week. I'm like food rationing at 15. Yeah. Is there any wonder why I can't do the thing that we talked about earlier before the call? <laughs> like, right? This is, you, you're not privy to that private joke. But it, because there's a certain amount of like relaxed safety uh-huh. vulnerability that that yeah. thing takes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> For the audience, you'll just have to be in confusion but <laughs> what we're talking about is being in our heads so we have to yes. it is it's so interesting even going back to um you know i would i love that private joke and that we have it like for all in return <laughs> really hard not to lose it <laughs> everyone's like what do you do <laughs> I just love, I love that we get to do this. Let me just say, I just love that we get to do this. Um, But seriously, so at 15, I'm making those kind of decisions. Like what's, what is the safe choice? What is the less risky choice? You know what I'm saying? Like I learned that at that age and that's not exclusive to being black, right? That is much more tied to being poor. Yes. Say that. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, there's that, like, you know, I'll be quick to say I'm very risk averse, right? Like, mm, 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 danger everywhere. Um, not just tied to my blackness, but tied to poverty. You know what I'm saying? So that kind of stuff, learning how to, like, try to measure safety as best as you can is another reason why, you know, it's not until I get to college and I'm like, oh, let's take some chances, meet new people, associate with new people. Yeah, you know what yeah. I'm saying? No, that that makes so much sense. And I guess my question is, do you feel deprived of anything from your childhood when you say that? Right. Or, or. Oh, yeah. cause I'm a boss. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're magical. <laughs> I mean, and I don't say that in a way yeah. to paint you as like this mythical non-human entity, yeah. but genuinely like if people haven't picked that up just from the immense mm-hmm. knowledge yeah. and passion and love mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you have, right. That yeah. that's just pure magic right there in the best sense of the word yeah Yeah. and so i don't know there's a space to talk about and becca i feel like there was a place you wanted to go there Um, we have permission to be just keep going 
Yeah, but there's space to talk about. And this is a conversation my mom and I were having during the rental storm last week when like the electricity kept going off and on about like how many things that black people created out of a deficit Mm. and made that shit just the bomb. You know, people were like, you know, we talk about the connection between like rhythm and blues to blues, right? Like black people were literally like singing about trauma and... I mean, I don't want to get into a conversation about the right or wrong of it, but what I'm saying is we've always learned how to take from a deficit place and uplift ourselves even in that. And so, yes, do if I, if I ever become a parent, I don't, I mean, I want to live a life where my 15-year-old kid doesn't have to like... Ration food, right? Food ration, right? But, you know, I appreciate the fact that what that lesson taught me is about how to, like, you know it reinforced I think it said something that I knew that insecurity, food insecurity did exist and it made me sensitive in a lot of ways about what people did and didn't have access to I I tell people that for me, the ultimate goal is shared humanity. And so that means that we live in a world where nobody is centered, that hierarchy doesn't exist. And so everybody um, has equal value, no matter what their gender expression is, their race, ethnic background, religious, whatever, everyone has equal value. And so for me, the goal is shared humanity, but we all have different lanes to get there. So for me, the lane, Kena's contribution to that is specifically addressing anti-Blackness. But for some other people, it could be specifically dealing with heteronormativity, right? Like there's, we all have a different part to play to get to that shared humanity that I think we all desire. And so me at an early age learning that, yes, yeah, some people have stuff and some people don't, and trying to navigate that for myself is, I think, part of the reason why I'm such an advocate now. Mm-hmm. That's you know? wildly fascinating. And so for that, I wouldn't, yeah, so for that, I wouldn't trade it. You know what I'm saying? Being the oldest of five kids, my mom didn't have childcare. Uh, like keeping, literally being responsible for keeping my siblings alive has helped me really value yeah. life, right? You know what I'm saying? Um, so like little things like that, that I learned in that, 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 the, the, that, that pressing is so vital and I, like I said I wouldn't change it for right. and it's, it's just really interesting though that we often the ways in which our systems force people into behaving we then go and criminalize that behavior so I'm just thinking about social services today and how people might look at a situation or a, a black parent or a parent of color and is automatically make assumptions and judgments and like oh that, that they're a bad parent and they're just seeing that one particular moment in time without any context or understanding of how this this parent has had to exist and function in the world so that is what what you're doing in the yeah. spaces that you're providing mm-hmm. to process that is just a gift mm-hmm. and it actually shouldn't be shocking though like it it's not shocking that we live like that the whole like for example the whole story isn't told about why someone would become a neighborhood drug dealer, why someone would, you know what I'm saying? It's not shocking that that's the case in a country that still can't tell the, the whole story about its origin. Mm, say that. Come on yep. now. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, we don't live, we are not raised t- 
taught or poured into the correct history. We live in this facade of what yep. white leaders wanted us to America is great. I mean, there's but, no reality. Yeah. <laughs> Truth wasn't the value when we when it, it was exceptionalism was the value and damn it be everything else. But truth has never been uh, our value of who we are in in this United States of America. We shame ourselves and we shame others. We're not loving ourselves. We don't love others. Yep. Um, You know, I'm doing this on my Patreon. I'm doing this book study right now and we're reading white trash and it's amazing. And I don't recommend it for everyone. And let me tell you who I don't recommend it for. If you're new, especially if you're like you're a white person who's new on your like anti-racism decolonization journey, then I wouldn't recommend it because then it could potentially be used to do some violent things. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to put that out there. But one of the things it talks heavy about is class structure and how class structure is deeply embedded in the United States and we act like it isn't. And that was always the intent. The intention was always that there would be people who had and people who didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Straight built up. into capitalism as a structure. It is. It so is, well, it's right? Back and to imperialism capitalism. and caste systems. All those bad things. And what's really incredible is, you know, I've been thinking since the Great Insurrection, I've been thinking about seeing, because like the, 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 the Senate hearings has really felt like whiteness on trial. That's what it has felt like watching it. And whiteness gets acquitted. And whiteness gets acquitted a again. On the hand. Again, right? That's why last week when, you know, my mom was like, we were talking about Texas and all these people. I was like, heads need a roll. Heads need a roll. You know, mm. uh, why is Greg Abbott still the governor, you know, Jesus. of Texas? Because Texas is voter suppressed. Duh. <laughs> Shout out to Brittany Cunningham Packett. Or is it? Brittany Packett Cunningham. Yeah. yeah. Brittany Packett Cunningham. It's like, Texas isn't blue, it's suppressed. Yes. I was like, sis, come through with the truth. But like, yeah, for white people especially, what would it mean? And this is the mic drop moment, okay? And even if it isn't, I'm still going to pretend it's a mic drop moment. But like, white people have been taught that everybody else is the it's those, it's fill in the blank. It's those people. It's those people. They're taking our jobs. They're doing this. They're taking our scholarships. But really, it's white people hurting white people. And that's always been the design. But how deeply heartbreaking is it when we find out that the people who betrayed us are the people who are most like us or the closest to us? Like, we're talking about this big lie that people are talking about, like Trump's like big lie. But I want to see white people talk about the, the big betrayal, the great betrayal, mm. which is your forefathers and your foremothers set it up where white people could equally be disenfranchised, transient, experience food insecurity. Like that's what y'all like in addition to all the shit white people got to do. Y'all got to get to that. Mm -hmm. Like, y'all have to get to the great betrayal. Mm -hmm. Nobody else did this to us. Mm. George Washington did it. Thomas Jefferson did it. Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) 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 
stain for that soundtrack, but at the same time, complicate Alexander Hamilton. Like, I stain for that soundtrack. But yeah, Alexander Hamilton did it. He was like, no, I'm not here for it. Mm-hmm. He very much wanted to uphold class structures. Just saying. Yeah. So, so if we could get... So anyway, I'm just saying part of that anti-racism work is also like looking at the class structures that have always existed to disenfranchise all groups of people, so many groups of people. Well, you can't. uh, One of the ways that I've rooted into teaching this is, um, specifically in this country, we need to start with a class analysis. But we won't fix our class analysis if we're not aware of how race, sex, gender, sexual orientation all act as points of stratification to continue to maintain class division and who gets to move up and down Mm -hmm. those lines. Yep. Yep. And why that, and not only is that important, Tommy, but we really need to lift up. And again, I'm not saying I have the perfect language for this, right? But we've got to kind of grow some muscle around specifically talking about in the United States, right? I'm, I'm giving this a United States context is the very ways in which first peoples and black people were specifically and strategically targeted mm-hmm. for the foundation of this country. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's yes. another thing. That's why anti-blackness conversation is also equally important is because the oppression is equally important in discussing, but how it manifests is very different. Mm. At any point in time, I can give you five reasons why the feds owe me a check. We talk about the sweat equity in the White House alone. Are you serious? Mm. I, IRS should never have a conversation with Kina, except for Kina, here's your monthly check. <laughs> Come on, speak on it now. <laughs> Bring them reparations. What does this look like, y'all? Give me a bill. <laughs> what does this This is like, see, this is another crime, but this is your crime. <laughs> Gotta get that third name. You gotta get that third name. Is in jail for tax evasion. It don't look right. It don't. It don't. It just don't. Like I should never pay federal income tax. My people built this shit for free. For gener- like generations, over generations. Yes. Mm. I don't want to get into my reparations plan because I got one, and it includes never paying federal income tax. I'm willing to pay sales locally. That's about it. Cause that makes sense. I'm a part of the local community. Great. Especially if I can recycle for free <laughs> and not like have to do it illegally. But federal income tax? Mm-mm. I would love not to be able tax. to pick where my taxes are allocated, quite frankly. Like put it yeah. all in the social programs, defund the military, defund the police. If we could do that, y'all, right? <laughs> oh. like, we could, like, as a country, pick where our taxes were allocated. That Mason Dixon line, ooh. I would, I would hurry up and move. I would, because y'all think about where I live. Y'all know where mm-hmm. I live. I would move tomorrow. Mm. I, I'm like, I gotta get the hell out of mm. here. Can speaking of that, can you talk about what was the culture shift moving from New York to this deep, oh. deep South? I wonder that too. Especially at thirteen. Oh gosh, that's probably part of the reason why they have friends. Because and that's what I that's why I asked the question honestly because I wanted to <laughs> like, did it have any connection? Thomas, like, I'm, <laughs> I was like, please talk about your DC to China drama. Please, please. 
I mean, you can ask me something and I'll be vulnerable and revealing too. So we're, it's, we're open books oh. here, so it's not just yes. spotlight it's on not. you. But. Well, you know, I don't post switch, right? And I've had a lot of black people be like, girl, you don't need to. I mean, this I know it. I know it. Y'all, I'm dead. This is I'm dead. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I, w- I would dis- I think that there's different degrees of code switching, and we all code switch is- to, to to navigate safety. But this is me. That's but I'm telling you, this is me not code switching. Okay, that's another conversation. <laughs> so I know I was just about to, and then I was like, nope, we got to keep this keep going. Keep I have a list of conversations. But, uh, so you just we we already know Keena's gonna be back. Keena's now oh, a friend of the pod. I am not judging black people who code switch because how you secure the bag is your business. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure I put that out there. If you gotta sound like Michelle Obama to keep your job, then do what you need to do. Say that. So when I first moved to the South. Like I had, oh, it was deeply traumatizing. So it's the first time that I ever heard, like had people literally call me the N word. So there was that, Oof. like this kid did it. His name was Chad Holden. I don't care. <laughs> I'll say the last name. Everybody find him on Twitter. <laughs> get him. Go get him. Are you still a racist, Chad Holden? Uh, and if, you, if you're not, reparations. <laughs> Oh my gosh, what if Chad Held is like living his best life with his like black wife or something? He's like, oh my gosh, I changed. That, I mean, anyway. You can have a black wife and still be racist and still prop up black children, children and still be racist. You can have black children be hella anti-black. Yeah. Hella anti-black. So, so Chad Holden, like one day I was in the lunchroom and I made a mistake and skipped him. And I really did make a mistake and skip him. Like I didn't even have friends to skip folks. And he was like, get out of the way, N-word. All right. So mm. there was that dynamic. And then I had black people, black kids I went to school with who were like, why do you sound like a white girl? And they called me like Oreo and all those things. I was like, I don't understand. Mm. I just want to make a friend. Mm. And so there was that I part. Really, about I like, resonate with that deeply. Uh, I, well, if people haven't noticed, right? I get, <laughs> I do, I get, you're so articulate, Tommy, from so many people. And I'm just. Which is so rude. <laughs> like, can we just. Can we just please can we say that out loud? Like, can that just please be widely distributed? That no one should ever say that to a black person. Like, just stop. Like, y'all are not helping the cause. Nope. It's like you think I don't know I'm articulate. It's for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also wonder for Tommy, for you, wasn't I mean, you had all that uh, speaker training in the Jehovah's Witness Church. Yeah, yeah. So, like every day, every week, we're up there either reading portion of the Bible or developing talks and outlines to hone our Mm -hmm. speaking skills so that we are representing God's kingdom in an acceptable fashion. Wow. I didn't know that. They say you learn something new every day. So y'all were like practicing like rhetoric. Yeah. We, you rehearse and you, you have books that has like, um, pre-done like they called it reasoning from the scriptures and conversation stoppers how to how to approach conversation stoppers and so for any objection that the person that we were visiting had there was something that we could say in return in an effort to get to read them a scripture mind is blown yeah 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 so i got i got or called oreo a lot and part I probably had, not probably, I did have internalized 
racism and, and disdain for people who looked like me because I associated being made fun of with blackness. That thing, that thing. This is what we're talking about, returning to self. We have been taught to hate everything about our blackness. <sighs> everything about it. Taught to hate our hair. Taught to hate how we sound. Taught to hate... First of all, let's talk about twerking for a second. Who's allowed to reasonably twerk in safe conditions, right? I know it sounds funny, but taught to hate how our butts jiggle. I mean, just all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of it so that's what i mean like return to a se- self and some of that is just gonna have to happen outside of the white gaze and you know yeah it's just again i'm here for you in all of the ways because yeah you you don't realize that you hate yourself no one tells you that's what it is but that's what i'm saying i, I can say this now because i'm on the other side of healing but for a long time, when people said to me, Kina, you're a different type of black girl, I was like, okay. Fuck you. I thought I was saying it. Oh, That's now, Kina. First of all, no one has said that shit to me in a long time. Probably you're not good. So yeah. that. I, and I hope that I project that. Don't say that kind of shit to me now, stuff, so anyway. All right? Like, I hope I have the energy that says. Don't don't try. Yes. Um, but at, there was a period in my life when people said that and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm a different kind of black girl. Yeah. yeah. And like, I thought I was I was like, I'm redeeming the culture. I'm redeeming the culture. Yes. <laughs> but how gross is that? Do you know oh, what I'm so saying? Bad. So bad. It's just so gross and so destructive that people are basically low-key telling us that we're different than black folks and we're like, okay. okay. I, it's just, oh, like thinking about it just makes me cringe. And I think that's why I stain like three things Kina loves Palestinian, Jesus, family, and black folks all day long. Like I just stain for black people, period. And it's interesting because everybody else is suspect. <laughs> However, and it's like, how did you get here? How did you get here? I, There's a white lady at the grocery store today who was making eye contact and trying to talk to me about the meat. I was like, no, ma'am, I'm not doing this with you. But I used to be that. Person. I'm just going. I'm just going to so, point back out your Enneagram six just came out in a big way right there. <laughs> just a big way. Like <laughs> she was like, hi. <laughs> yeah. She was. Okay, can we take a moment? So, like, I know this is not a part of the broadcast, but seriously, because this is another thing that I think is so helpful for, like, non-Black folks, right? Which is, like, here's the thing, y'all. I get it. Uh, Other Black secrets I'm revealing in case no one knows this. There's a posturing of, I'm a safe Black person that we do, verbally, non-verbally especially in the South, right? That whole driving Miss Daisy thing, that's a whole phenomenon. So what are the things that I can do to let people who are white around me or people who are black around me feel like I'm not a threatening black person? So in the last two years, I've really, again, part of my own decolonization stuff is I've had to think about what do I owe people, Mm. right? And that's not just whiteness. That's also within the paradigm of toxic masculinity Mm. and patriarchy. Speak on it. I don't owe now. Speak on it. I don't. I don't got to smile with you, sir. Yes. And so the same thing with white people. So she's sitting here trying to talk to me about the meat. And I'm like, first of all, I need you to back up because there's four strains of COVID out here. Right. 
social distance. But she's like, yeah. And I'm and, and I and honestly, there was this look she gave me, and I mean, who knows? Who knows? She, who knows? But it looked like she just really couldn't believe it. Like she made three attempts, and I was like, yeah. You know, and I mean, the first thing she said was like, these are some high prices. And I was like, and that's it. <laughs> like, that's all the energy I had. That's it. I'm not doing anything what else. What you trying you. to say? And, right. Well, and I, well, first of all, she was just trying to say we in this uh, economic situation that is America. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, <laughs> we all out here, you know. But, yeah, I was like, you know, and so and that's not the first time that's happened. And I think to a certain extent white people are shocked so again this project is really about also cultivating a space for white people because lots of white people well i don't know lots is relative there are people who are part of the anti-blackness reader project that who are not black and i love it i'm here for it because part of the things that those people need to learn white people need to learn is how not to be centered so how to come be present as a guest in the space, but not centered. It's a good muscle. It's a good, good muscle that needs lots of work. So I, I had an elder yeah. tell so I'm me talking about mine too. I'm not excluding myself. I just, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, yeah. I've had I've had an elder, a black woman elder, tell you know a couple it's a, a year and a half ago now, Bishop. Uh, I hope we get her on the podcast, but Bishop Tanya Rawls. She oh, I was wondering if you're going to say her. She gave me a beautiful, beautiful advice, and um, she said, she looked at me, she goes, you're young, and you're smart, and you know your stuff, but just sit in a room sometimes and don't say anything and watch what you learn. And I've never forgotten that, and I will never forget that. So often I feel like Mm -hmm. I have to take up space or give an idea or, or be in the center and to have that elder wisdom to to tell me to cultivate that muscle of discernment and wisdom. Yes. Um, yes. It's so is I would say it's so important for white people entering into spaces that don't look like them to cultivate that muscle of discernment and wisdom, and just shut up and listen. You will gain so much. Especially because the world we live in doesn't really do that, right? Like the world we live in doesn't really create that many opportunities for white people to be the only person in the womb who's white. Like that's not a re- that's not a real reality for most white people, yeah. I would say. Yeah, yeah. I would just, I mean, that's an honor to be able to sit the, in a room that's not about you and to listen. Mm-hmm. I want white people us to learn the value of having that ability to learn that invitation in that's sacred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that will lead you to having a real black friend. Oh, we have come full circle. Look at that. <laughs> there you there go. You so she brought it. So, uh, you mentioned that you love Palestinian Jesus and mm-hmm. one of the outgoing questions that we always like to ask uh, our guests, uh, when I think about uh, our audience, a lot of them are coming from evangelicalism and have weird relationships with theology. Um, and some of us mm-hmm. are going through this reclamation process where, like, for me, uh, merging Christianity and Buddhism 
in my spiritual practices. And so this term that we ask can be loaded and carry a whole lot of ugh for some people. Well, you already asked me why I didn't have friends growing up. <laughs> I love you so much. Do your work. <laughs> She's like, we, we've already bonded now. Just ask whatever. <laughs> but what is... You're so- leading up like a... <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm just going to shut my mouth. <laughs> What is salvation looking like and feeling like for you um, as you reclaim who you are in this world? I feel like that's equally tied up to like, what does liberation look like? Yeah. Um, I don't think we know, you know, talking about my mom again, you know, she freaked out the other day when I was like, oh, God's not binary. I'm not even ready to tell her. I'm like, I don't even know if hell exists, but okay. Right, because it makes sense that hell would be created as an enterprise for a lot of violent systems, but that's yeah. not, that's another conversation. Um, I don't know where I've landed with that. That's all I'm saying. Don't know, okay? Uh, but salvation really... Gosh, I don't know how to, I can answer this question from a lot of different places, but not from a spiritual one. And maybe yeah. that just means I have more work to do, you know? I love that realization. Um, That's really profound. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't even, cause like I thought about like what liberation means. I've even been thinking about like what equity means. Cause recently I've revamped that in my mind, but I've not thought about salvation. So that's something I need to journal through. You want to know what equity means to me today, yeah. though? I have the an answer to that. Yep. Equity today for me, because like two years ago, it was like, yeah, people of color, black people being able to like bring their whole selves to a place. And it still means that. But it also means like I could be as ratchet as a Karen in a grocery store and wild out over avocados. <laughs> Come on now. Come on. I could show up to work late for six months and when I get there, don't even do half the shit and still confidently ask for a promotion. That's what equity looks like. Mm. Mm. Confidently ask for it. Not even like, you know, like, be like, when am I being promoted? (laughs) In America, that's true what it looks like. That's what equity looks like. It looks like 5,000 black people store over the Capitol and then going back to the hotel. <laughs> Kina, this has been an honor and a privilege. Oh my um, gosh, right? <laughs> thank you so much. It's such a fun time. Y'all are such a fun time. Thank you so much for going to the vulnerable spaces with us. And, and um, Thank you for still liking Tommy when he asked you the hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's fine. It's, you know, again, when you come to the other side of something, you know. Yeah. Thank you all for allowing me to be authentic. Now you all know things about me that some people don't know. And- well, what's beautiful is I experienced this um, as a revolutionary act, as an act of liberation, when we're able to show up and tell our actual story, our whole story, mm-hmm. our, and share our whole self. And so, wow. Shout out. I was supposed to say shout out Hannah Naomi Jones. Mm-hmm. 
so amazing in that regard. She's taught me a lot about storytelling and authenticity. Authenticity, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. And so I just want to really express my gratitude for you showing up for this revolutionary act, this Mm -hmm. act of resistance. Uh Um, Mm -hmm. And when we show up like this, we, I, I do believe, we're not just breaking down structures, but we're transforming hearts. Yay, I love that. Yeah. So tell mm-hmm. people how they can Heart- contact you and we're out of here. <laughs> uh, Google Joaquina Reed, J O I N A. You can follow me on the Instagrams. That sounds like such an old lady. Instagram. I know, it's like, oh, do we have to do TikTok? Gosh. <laughs> I just refuse. I can barely tweet y'all. Like, it feels like the impossible task. So, they just keep you multiplying. Actually, I have the Twitter. They can find me on the Twitter, too. I mean, yeah, it's there. Uh, so, Instagram, the anti-blackness reader. Instagram, hug your white friends. Uh... Same across Facebook, the anti-blackness reader, hug your right friends. Uh, those things exist on Al Gore's interwebs. And do you have any events coming up that uh, people can check you out at or anything? You know, no, not currently. You know, I have a Patreon That's page too. I have a Patreon. Yeah. Yes, I do have a Patreon. Um, and so the plan, you know, I got some things in the work. I'm trying to do some things, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. that just... Just be on the lookout for yeah. it. Look on, so on go to Kina's, but, uh, uh, go to Joaquina's Patreon, Patreon page. Yes, it's patreon.com slash Kina Reed. Yeah. And all this will be in the show notes. Like, we'll put your links for everything. Yeah, go give her some coins. Give her uh, that money. Support her. Let's, let's create. So help me secure the bag. Yes. Make it rain for <laughs> me. Kina, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Oh, my goodness. This needs to be like... Part one of her 10 episode series. <laughs> Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permission to be podcast.com to check out the show notes. Get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, permission to be podcast, and we'll see you soon.